Oh, good evening. Um, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome Richard McGregor this evening uh, to talk to us about his new book, which was published last Thursday, um, The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers. Um, and I think this is a, an enormously important subject and one which I guess has been seriously neglected. Um, there's probably an assumption that because we know about the Soviet Union and what happened to the Soviet Communist Party, we also know about the Chinese Communist Party. And I think this is um, very misleading um, and it's something, an institution that we don't understand uh, uh, nearly well enough except in very cardboard uh, cutout terms. And so um, I'm sure you're going to find uh, Richard's talk this evening uh, very illuminating and equally his book uh, which he will be signing afterwards uh, after the end of the discussion. I think Richard will probably talk for about... If, if you buy it. If you buy it, <laughs> yes. That's quite, quite an important qualification really. Um, uh, uh, Richard's going to talk for about half an hour, uh, 45 uh, minutes um, and then we'll uh, take uh, questions and probably finish around about eight o'clock. So let me introduce to you Richard McGregor. Uh, thank you, Martin. I might have to. Maybe I don't need to. And when I want to push the the slide for the PowerPoint, press just press the arrow. Okay. Um, thanks, Martin, and thanks everybody for coming. Um, let me know if you can't hear me because I can't lean down too much further. Uh, <coughs> the, well, the first time I was posted in China was in uh, 1997 when I went there for an Australian newspaper, uh, actually the broadsheet owned by Rupert Murdoch called The Australian. And, Soon after I set up an office there, we got summons to a dinner with the great man <coughs> and his then uh, translator, Wendy Dung. Of course, when I become his wife. Um, now, you know, you can say lots of things about Murdoch, but one thing is, is true is that he's a great gossip, so he's great to have dinner with. So, you know, you get Tony this and Henry this and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that really struck me about the dinner that struck in my head was that when he said, he was going on about China, and he said, I've never met any communists in China. Um, now, you know, in some respects, that's an obvious thing to say, because if you go to China, and even 1997, it's not like the old Soviet Union, you know, <coughs> uh, drab buildings and uh, food uh, queues and the like, and, um, you know, miserable people. I mean, there's the odd bunch of uh, scowling policemen sort of thing, but, you know, it's not like the stereotypical view of communism, and it certainly isn't now. Um, I mean, this is an impression that is created on a lot of people. For example, somebody who might be well known to a lot of people in this room, a famous or infamous British newspaper editor who used to run The Sun called Kelvin McKenzie, uh, came to China 10 years later. That's the, the son of page three girls and the like, and he was so excited, I remember, about the dynamism, uh, dynamism of China that when he said to me, he said, he said, when I go back to Britain, he said, I want to join the Communist Party as well. Um, <coughs> needless to say, he didn't. Um, 
But you know, the it's an obvious, uh, it's a, an understandable statement because the only communists they meet in China are people who want to do business with them. Now, in Mr. Murdoch's case, of course, he's in one area that. Uh, you know, his problem at that time was that he couldn't meet any communist officials and eventually when he did, what didn't do him any good anyway because the media is one area that the Chinese really don't want to do too much business with foreigners. So, you know, he actually eventually got a meeting with a propaganda chief. Later he hired his son, but it was to no avail and he's basically given up on China since. Um, but, you know, he was right about one thing. It wasn't like the Soviet Union. But he was certainly wrong about the other thing because anybody of any importance in China, in the government or a public institution, and that's very broadly defined, is a member of the Communist Party. Um, and the reason he missed it is because it's largely out of sight. Now, there's lots of jokes about the Communist Party in China. Uh, some people call it the world's largest chamber of commerce. Um, other people call it the world's biggest mixed business. Uh, there was a, a speech recently by the head of the, a very big private equity group, uh, a US private equity group, who said he finally realized he understood China because he said it was just like Goldman Sachs. You know, the Politburo of 30 people ran the whole show, and they were on every side of every deal. Um, <coughs> the, uh, and, and China also fits in the old definition, or the old joke about uh, 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 communism um, in Russia, which was... Uh, uh, what, is, what is communism? And the answer being that uh, communism is the longest pass, path from capitalism to capitalism. Um, now, but what is, was really striking for me once I started to uh, look at this topic, um, uh, you know, you know there's, I mean, there's lots of ways you can look at the way China is governed. Obviously, China has a very long uh, bureaucratic tradition uh, of a strong or an attempt to have a strong central government. Um, you know, the, uh, emperors have always put political officers into armies through various dynas uh, dynasties to spy on generals. Um, you know, the emperor has sacked, you know, taken people's hats off and on and sacked people. That's one tradition. These days with the party, there's some kind of McKinsey-like add-ons. You know, if you look at the Communist Party officials these days, in theory, they're judged by a whole bunch of these KPIs, so-called key performance indicators about whether they're doing a good job or not. I mean, in practice, it really only matters if they're getting the economy growing. Um, but you know, if you look past uh, China's lengthy history and very recent modernization, what is most striking about the Communist Party in China these days is that how remarkably it follows the blueprint that Lenin designed for the Soviet Union. In other words, all the governing hardware in China is still Soviet, or to use uh, another word, Leninist. Now, what is a Leninist system? I'm sure many of you in this room might know a lot better than I, but boiled down, it's basically a, uh, a, a purely political organization which controls the government. The party sits at, on top of the government and is really a law unto itself. Um, uh, it's hard to get your head around this, and when friends of mine used to come to visit me in Shanghai, I would tell them, give them a kind of lesson in Leninism 101 by telling them to go to uh, Kamping Road, which is the, uh, where the party compound is in Shanghai, <clears throat> and watch the cars coming in and out of the compound because the party secretary's number plate is 0001. The mayor, who's the you know, senior government figure, is 0002. 
and you go right down through the party committee like that. But it's always the case the party outranks the government. Um, now, <coughs> sorry. Obviously, lots has changed in China in the last 30 years. Um, uh, I don't need to tell many Chinese in this room. Individual Chinese have a far greater freedom than they've had, uh, 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 you know, certainly under Mao, perhaps even before that. You know, the freedom to to work where you want, uh, particularly in urban areas, the freedom to buy your own home, buy a car, travel overseas, study overseas, <coughs> and also to get rich. Um, uh, but the party, and the party I think in many respects has largely removed itself from people's private lives. <coughs> so in many respects for individual Chinese, the party can be kind of like a, a, you know, a radio that's left on in the background that you can learn to ignore. Of course, it can be turned up now and again, but the party does not want to intrude, by and large, into people's private lives. Um, <clears throat> the party has kept a lock on three big things, which are the most important things. One is propaganda or media. The other is uh, uh, personnel, uh, HR, if you like. And the other is the military. So what does the big beast look like? I've got a diagram for you, if I can turn it on. Pressing the arrows. Oh, and, ah, there it is. Okay. Just one second. She might be able to do that. I'm not going to turn this into a lecture, I just want to point out a few things. <clears throat> now remember this is a totally political organisation, quite separate from the government. <clears throat> so if you look up the top, you've got the, the boss, the nine members of the standing committee. I mean, China's big problems, you might think of the environment, agriculture and the like. That is not the day-to-day -day concern of these guys. They do cover the economy, but they cover political issues like Taiwan, uh, like the parliament, uh, like unifying um, overseas Chinese, uh, and uh, like uh, security, state security, and the law. So, Hu Jintao... Okay, so the military is directly under the party secretary. This body here, the important thing to remember about China, the Communist Party is it's all in the family, right? So this body here is the anti-corruption body. Now, if you look at that name, I mean, if the UK ever, le ever uh, legalised bondage parlours, this might be the body that regulated it with a name like that. <coughs> but if you are in trouble for corruption in China, you are not arrested by any independent authority or the police, you're arrested by the party. And effectively you're found guilty when you're expelled by the party. The, the, the law is basically an afterthought. Um, <coughs> that the central committee is like the broader um, uh, the board of directors, if you like, of the whole country. Lots of people from you know, so-called minority groups, from the, the military, uh, from you know, provincial leaders and the like. Uh, the real hub is here, particularly these two bodies. Propaganda department, 
propaganda is media. Uh, that controls the media. It controls the teaching of history and the like, which is very important. And the organization department, which is my favorite, uh, is like the party's HR department. Now, <clears throat> let me try and give you a sense of the breadth of its coverage, because that gives you a sense of the breadth of the coverage of the entire party. So just imagine if you had, in the UK, a single body which oversaw the appointment of the entire cabinet, uh, the heads of all the large councils, the mayors of major cities, uh, the heads of the Scottish and Welsh assemblies. That would probably be done through the Minorities Bureau or something like that. Um, uh, the list goes on. The heads of all federal regulatory authorities, the chief executives of Tesco, BP, <coughs> Shell, they might have sacked the head of BP by now, and, uh, and the 50 largest companies, uh, the justices on the Supreme Court, uh, the editors of every major paper from The Guardian to The Sun, and the bosses of BBC, Sky, Channel 4 and the like. Now on top of that, uh, the party body oversees the appointments of the chancellors of uh, universities, Oxford, Cambridge, the LSE. The top person <coughs> is a party appointment. In fact, the top three people are party appointments or thereabouts. Uh, and the think tanks you have in Britain, Demos, whatever you call them, they're all appointed by the party. One of the biggest think tanks in China, in fact, the biggest think tank, which has a lot of fantastic people in it, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, uh, the older guys in CAS, as it's called, actually still refer to CAS as a department. Um, now, not only that, the vetting process basically takes place behind closed doors. There's no public debate about who gets what job. Um, <clears throat> but more than that, the organization department itself, just like the propaganda department, and this is the kind of pre-modern part of China, uh, the organization department has an absolutely fabulous big office tower just near uh, Tiananmen Square. And it has no sign outside the building indicating what the business is inside and it has no listed phone number, so if you're a member of the public and you want to ring them up, you can't. It actually, it actually has one phone number where you're allowed to leave a recorded message if you have a complaint about uh, a particular official, but that's it. <coughs> um, they do claim to have been appointed uh, a spokesman in the last 12 months or so, but so he doesn't have a phone number and certainly we could never ring him when we wanted to talk to him. Um, but the party's secrecy, I think for many of the officials, does not really seem to be a big issue. In fact, I finally got to talk to somebody from the organization department in Hunan. Remember, this structure is replicated at every, in every province, every city, uh, and every county. <clears throat> they all have their organization departments and propaganda departments. And I finally got to talk to somebody in Hunan about the organization department, and I said to him, I said, I mean, why are you so secretive? And he, he was kind of nonplussed by the question. He said, well, you know, we don't face the people. We face the government. I mean, the, the cadres, they all know where we live. It's like knowing where your parents are. Um, but as to the question of whether the public should have any knowledge or involvement in this work, it was completely out of the question. <coughs> now, the sheer size of China means that everything is magnified. So the party has about 75 million members, you know, more than the population of Britain, but that actually is basically standard for communist parties in the Soviet era. Uh, I was reading a book by Archie Brown recently. He said that I think one in 10 <coughs> adult Chinese in the Soviet Union and Soviet, Soviet satellite states 
uh, were party members in China. It's about one in 12 adult Chinese. Um, but you know, once again, the party has changed in recent years. It's no longer a party of uh, workers and peasants. Uh, you know, the people that the party wants to hire these days are you know smart young young students, perhaps like some of the people in this room, <coughs> and also uh, entrepreneurs are welcomed into the party officially since about 2000. So it's the private sector and uh, you know smart people. Um, I mean, the only organisation that I could think was vaguely comparable to the the party was uh, the Vatican. You know, which which protects you know its hold on the liturgy, just like the party protects its grip on the political system. And in <coughs> fact, the Vatican is one of the uh, uh, China is one of the few countries the Vatican has not been able to establish diplomatic ties with, which is, of course, an absolute disaster for the Church because it's the the biggest proselytizing opportunity in the world, and they're out of the market um, by and large. Uh, the Vatican and the, um, the party have been you know, talking officially and unofficially for years. It's an issue of authority. The, the, the Vatican would like to appoint bishops. I think the party thinks it should appoint the bishops. Um, <clears throat> but um, they, I, I spoke to one of the guys once who's involved in the second track uh, negotiations uh, with the Vatican, uh, a Chinese guy. And he, he's a very funny guy, and he said he, said he was, he, he was uh, in conversations with one of the cardinals at the Vatican, and um, he said to him, he said, oh, well, you know, you, you know, you're just like us. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you've, uh, you know, uh, we, you've got the College of Cardinals, we've got the organization department, um, you've got the evangelicals, we've got the propaganda department. And the cardinal said, well, what's the difference? And he said, oh, uh, you know, you're God and we're the devil. <laughs> he was joking, mind you. Um, <clears throat> in any case, but if the party was purely obsessed with control, um, uh, you know, it would not have lasted, just as other, most other communist regimes did not last. Uh, and the reason is that it has lasted is that its obsessions run in a number of other directions as well, equally. Uh, in the other direction, besides control over the political system, the party wants a stronger co uh, economy and you know, adapts, if you like, the mechanisms of governance and control to you know, the much more complex realities that are running, that you know, the Chinese economy these days requires. So the party's genius, if you like, has been its ability to maintain the authoritarian powers of an old-style old communism while basically dumping the ideological straitjacket that originally inspired them. In other words, they kept this, but put a market economy on top of it. So somehow, they've managed to hitch the power and legitimacy of a communist state to the drive and productivity of an entrepreneurial economy. And that's a pretty remarkable feat. <coughs> now, what does the party do well? What does the party do badly? If you want to see what the party does, did well, look at the financial crisis. Uh, in 2008, many people would have forgotten, but basically the bottom dropped out of the Chinese economy just as it did in the West after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, <clears throat> we've seen in both the US and the UK where the state has effectively taken over control of many large banks, you know, Citibank, Lloyds, RBS and the like. And the difficulties people in Washington, the governments in Washington and London have, have had in, in, in trying to get those banks to lend. The banks basically you know, are still governed by their boards of directors 
and they don't really listen to their owner. And the owners, owners have not felt able to sort of, you know, sack people, if you like, or remove them for, for, for not meeting lending quotas which have been set. Look what happened in China. Uh, remember, economic growth is the absolute priority of the party. So at the end of 2008, the Politburo decided China needed a massive stimulus program and they told the banks to lend. Now, China went through an absolutely extraordinary banking period of banking reform from 2000 onwards and the idea was to clean up bad debts which had been left in the 80s and 90s and put the banks on a commercial footing and they did, did a pretty remarkable job. You know, they're all the big uh, four of the big five Chinese banks are now listed on overseas stock markets and the Chinese chief executives of those banks care about their share price very much. But that's one hat. The other hat they wear is as senior party members. At least two, I think, or three of the heads of the biggest four banks in China, they sit on the central committee. Every bank chairman has a specific government rank. In other words, they're, they're, they're ranked as vice ministers. Um, so. When, when they're told to lend, they lend. Not only that, they compete with each other to lend. So you have the state competing against the state. In other words, senior party members competing with other senior party members to get the money out of the door as fast as they can. So that's why you see, I think, in the first quarter of this year, China growing above 10%, maybe 11 12%. Uh, there's going to be some bad debts left behind. <clears throat> I don't think anything like the 90s but they got exactly, the party, the leadership, got exactly what they wanted. I mean, in the, when the economy collapsed, we had all those figures about 22 million Chinese um, um, uh, being thrown out of work in southern China in the export sector, the workshop of the world. Look at the situation now in, in southern China in the first quarter of this year. Uh, for various reasons, companies like Honda and Foxconn offering their staff 30% pay rises. Situation's completely turned around. So that's the strength of the party. You've got the absolute flexibility. If they want to mobilise capital, they want to mobilise people, they want to mobilise the system, they can still do it. <coughs> um, what does the party do badly? I've got a chapter in my book on the a scandal in the Olympics year involving uh, contaminated baby formula, involving a company in, in uh, Hebei province called uh, Sanlu. Just to give you the background of the... Uh, uh, of this scandal. The baby formula had been laced uh, by a chemical or a, something called melamine, which I think is used to make plastic. And it was used by the middlemen in, in gathering milk because they could keep up the nitrogen content or the protein content, you know, pass it off as good milk, but basically increase their margins. Now, this is in 2008. The first reports started coming in of babies being sick. Remember, this is, you know, babies uh, getting sick and in some cases dying, extraordinarily serious, uh, started coming in in 2008 to the company in, in Hebei. Um, now, what did they do about that? Basically, they did nothing. Um, uh, in fact, they actively covered it up. Um, <clears throat> now, cover-ups happen all over the world in all manner of different societies and governments for you know, different reasons, perhaps, and often case the same reasons. But what I want to look at is, is how it worked in China and how the party institutions actually facilitated the cover-up right from the beginning right to the end. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, um, uh, on the one hand, the party, the, the, the woman 
who headed this company was the CEO of a very uh, important commercial enterprise. That's wearing one hat. On the other hand, she was also party secretary of the company, and as party secretary of the company, uh, as a senior party official, she had the same duty as everybody else in China that year, is to make sure the Olympics was a success. Um, uh, the second duty she had was to her city, was to make sure that the city company, this city-owned company, kept going and made a profit because it was an, uh, a very important source of tax revenue. Um, in short, what happened is that they, they got confirmation just before the Olympics that babies were being getting very sick. Uh, they covered it up. Uh, it, it, it came out about two or three months later uh, when their joint venture partner from New Zealand uh, went to the central government and blew the whistle. Um, I don't exonerate them either, by the way. But in the process, I think you know, hundreds of thousands of babies had uh, been made ill, some of them permanently, and a number had died. But how did party institutions work to facilitate this? Well, the first thing they, this company did uh, when they had confirmation that, they, that babies were being poisoned was to go to the local propaganda department and, and stop news reporting about the issue. So it didn't get out. Um, uh, when the scandal did break uh, and the issue had to be handled politically once again, the board of the company, which is the legally incorporated body, was sidelined and the organisation department stepped in and sacked the chairman, uh, chairwoman, I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, the, the board itself was sidelined, the party came in and fixed that. Now, there was an absolutely enormous scandal, of course, because you can't cover up something like that forever. Um, and many, many parents, thousands of parents, wanted to sue uh, the government and sue the company. Um, so, in cleaning up the scandal, the, another party body came in, which is this one here. Where is it? Uh, politics, where is the... I can't... Uh, there it is, the Central Politics and Law Committee. Note the order, politics and law, in that order. The law is subordinate to politics. Um, uh, uh, the Politics and Law Committee control, controls the Justice Ministry. It ultimately controls um, um, uh, the, uh, the judges. Uh, and, I mean, law is a, is, a, is a rapidly growing profession in China, but alongside the growth in the number of lawyers, uh, the party has grown alongside them. So I think about half of the law firms in China now have party committees in them. Um, you know, China is, is, is full of lawyers who want to be lawyers, journalists who want to be uh, uh, journalists, you know, judges who want to be judges, you know, professions growing up uh, with the ethos that professions have in, you know, a country like the UK. Um, but in a case like this, where people actually, the lawyers wanted to do their job, the Politics and Law Committee of the party, once again another secret body which operates in the shadows, basically stepped in, if you like, uh, said to the judges, don't take these cases. It warned most of the lawyers off. They said, don't put these uh, uh, cases forward if you want to keep your jobs. Uh, in the end, they allowed a symbolic about, you know, five number of cases to come to the court. So there would be some sort of symbolic uh, victory, if you like, for the parents. Uh, um, I think parents were probably given some money. Um, uh, but the, you know, the party ensured that the scandal ended there. So in the wake of the San Lu scandal, the Chinese papers were absolutely full of discussion about it, about how the regulators had failed, about how the government had failed, 
um, about how the city government had failed and the like, uh, but there was never ever any examina uh, examination of the role played by the propaganda department, the organisation department and the politics and law committee because that simply is not really allowed to be discussed in a full-blooded way. So that's two examples of what the party does well and what it does badly. Um, <clears throat> at the end of the day, if uh, you know, China is run by the Communist Party, you might say, you know, so what? We're kind of beyond, I guess, the reds under the bed uh, uh, era. Um, we don't need to demonise communists uh, like was done in the Cold War. Uh, China, after all, is for all its blemishes a success story. Uh, you know, economic growth there has literally lifted you know hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. What does it matter? Well, um, <clears throat> uh, and also I think also think that the Chinese system is not particularly exportable. Um, uh, you know, you, you hear lots of talk about the so-called Beijing consensus and the like, which basically I think just means that. You know, you want an authoritarian leader who can have a successful economy, but you know the Chinese system is much more nuanced than that. So I just don't think it can be uh, taken off overseas to uh, any country in Africa that wants to emulate it, or anywhere else. The only country in the world that vaguely resembles China is Vietnam. Um, but I think it's it's important, though, particularly for the West, because with the success of China, which is not guaranteed, the success of China the rest of the world finally has, if you like, an alternative system um, which they can look to, uh, negotiate with. I mean, it's not like choosing between Euros and Europe. This is a starkly different system and so far a very resilient system. Um, and I think the, the, at the heart of the Chinese system, many of the top leaders are quite hostile to the US in particular and in some respects the West or very suspicious of the West. Um, not in a military sense, you know, I don't think you know, there's a war on the horizon or anything like that, but hostile to the idea of Western dominance um, and in many respects hostile to Western democratic ideals, however besmirched they might have become in recent years. And so I think in that respect it's very important because that's something that our children and grandchildren are going to be dealing with uh, for decades to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Perhaps to set the ball rolling, can I ask you a question? Uh, I noticed at the end, towards the end of the book, or right at the end of the book, in the afterword, um, you discuss in a way the prospects uh, for um, the Chinese Communist Party and China as we know it now. Now, the sort of default mode for a long time um, in the West has been. Um, you know, relatively pessimistic about China, that things, something's going to go wrong rather than it's going to go right. Uh, although it's shifted uh, slightly, but uh, not shifted in many ways that much. And there's always a sort of perception that um, the reason why the CPC behaves like it is is it feels that it's vulnerable, that it's weak. Uh, now, I noticed in your afterword, you strike a rather different note to that. And you say that, uh, um, in many ways, it's a rather self-confident organisation. Could you elaborate? 
Well, yes, I guess it is. I mean, I'm <clears throat> firmly the so-called resilient authoritarianism school. I think it's, you know, the system, whether you like it or not, has proved to be very successful on its own terms and resilient, particularly in the last 30 years, obviously not pre-1979. Um, and uh, I don't, re you know, all the people who've bet against China have basically been wrong. Now, I think China's weak point will be when <clears throat> uh, the economy matures. I mean, I think China's probably got another 5, 10, maybe 15 years mm -hmm. of relatively, rel relatively strong growth. Um, while you've got strong growth, you've got a lot of money being thrown off, sloshing around the system. You're able to, you know, if people's lives are getting better. There's no reason for the middle class in particular um, to rise up. So in that respect, I think it's very resilient. And the government and the party are also responsive uh, to problems. Um, uh, yes, a lot of stuff is swept under the carpet, but, you know, they know very, uh, very, very practiced, particularly after... Uh, the crackdown in Beijing in 1989 at nipping problems in the bud before they turn into the kind of demonstrations we saw then. Um, so in that respect, it's, it's resilient, maybe even self-confident. Uh, with confidence, you know, if you look at China, it's got through every downturn since 2000. You know, the internet bubble being burst, uh, joining the WTO, uh, the Asian financial crisis, uh, more recently the global financial crisis, they've managed to get through them all. Uh, having said that, I think there's an underlying uh, uh, paranoia. Um, um, you know, I think they certainly <coughs> subscribe to Andy Grove's uh, idea that only the paranoid survive. Uh, and, uh, you know, remarkably paranoid or remarkably alert to potential infiltration of the system by NGOs, uh, by, by Western, you know, <coughs> um, promoters of democracy, uh, by uh, the West in general. Um, so I think that's a, a mixture from their point of view of healthy paranoia and perhaps uh, some lingering doubts about their legitimacy or the need to constantly renew their legitimacy. Mm. Thank you very much. Okay, let's, let's uh, open it up. Uh, please uh, make sure that there are questions, uh, not speeches. <laughs> I'm sure you'll all be remarkably self-disciplined. Okay, yep, the <coughs> chap there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, no, can I ask the, you about, uh, sorry. No, no someone, there, there, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Sandeep Bansal, and thank you for the uh, interesting talk and, and your insights, very much appreciated. Uh, I look forward to the outstanding book. Um, my question is that how much real support does the party have among its people? I mean, right now, you've got strong you know, economic growth. Everything is, is going well. But what if the economy doesn't do so well? Is there a chance that the people will no longer stand for this type of um, structure within the government? Thank you. I mean, the short answer to that is, <clears throat> you know, in the absence of an open election or open opinion polling, you know, it's impossible to make, you know, for want of a better word, a scientific statement about how much broad support there is, but uh, I, you know, you know, if you have a feeling in your bones, I think they've become, uh, their support for the party has grown along with uh, the re-rise of China, with the strengthening of the economy, with the greater respect around the world, um, uh, uh, with China's return to the ranks of great powers and the like, that's all in the mix, along with nationalism. 
So, you know, I have a sense of broad support. On the other hand, you have the corruption issue, which is basically institutional. Um, you know, unless you have a, a, an independent arbiter, you're always going to have uh, large-scale corruption in China, and that corrodes the party's, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, position and legacy. Um, I interviewed a guy, I did a chapter on one guy who wrote a book in secret, a Sinhua journalist, about the, the, the Great Famine <clears throat> in 1958 to 1960 when 30 to 40 million people died. Um, and he said to me, and it struck in my head, he said, the, the system is decaying and the system is evolving and I don't know which one will prevail. And I think that's a good way of putting it. But you, you, on the evidence of the last 30 years, people who have bet against China have basically been proved wrong. So you'd have to give them the benefit of the doubt. No, no need to turn around, it's you. Hi, could you touch on Mao's legacy and his continuing relevance? Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a huge topic. I mean, I think, for me, one of the blind spots of China um, is history. Uh, if you read the chapter on the Great Leap Forward, this is something which is, you know, the party has a verdict on both the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and on Mao himself, I think 70% good, 30% bad. Uh, it's not an issue on which there's open discussion. Um, uh, so I think, you know, historical blind spot, you can talk about China or any country in the world, is, is, is corrosive uh, and, 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 you know, not, not a good thing. But there's a, you know, new breed of historians, I think, coming particularly out of some universities in Shanghai these days, you do get access to party documents and the like. Uh, and in a few years we might see the fruits of their work because the people who are going to write the best histories of China are not going to be foreigners, obviously they're going to be Chinese. Uh, you can see a lot of work published in Hong Kong, uh, some of it fantasy, some of it excellent. Um, but, you know, in general, w within the party itself, because the party, you know, its legacy is tied up with Mao, you know, if you start to unravel Mao, where do you stop? Uh, and I think they're quite fearful of taking that on, but certainly of allowing anybody else to take it on. Yep. Thank you very much, Mr. Gregor, for your um, talk. My name is Paul Hudson. Um, you're referring, in fact, to the confi uh, confidence of the um, Chinese Communist Party, and you also made a reference to nipping problems in the bud, by which I take it you mean they're sort of solved before resentment gathers. But I'm trying to reconcile that with um, reports that we get in the West of, um, for example, in this, the development of these hydroelectric um, schemes farmers and people being uh, moved to make way and not getting adequate compensation. You mentioned the problem of the uh, milk powder and a lot of children dying and parents uh, not getting a full explanation as to what has happened. And I'm trying to reconcile those last two effects with the general points that you were making. Could you please um, enlighten us a little bit further on yeah, that? I mean, well, there look, seems to be a well, tension between them. Well, Thank there's you. certainly a tension there. I don't know whether it's a contradiction. The, everywhere I used to go in China, anywhere I went, any city, 
you see a demonstration. <clears throat> now, the one big lesson I think learned in 1989 is to, is to not let it get out of control again. So the stereotypical view might be that if there's a demonstration in China, the police get out the truncheons and beat the crap out of people. <clears throat> that doesn't happen, by and large. They would take people aside, uh, you know, warn them uh, that they shouldn't be doing this, maybe give people a little bit of money, break them up, try and send them home. Now, if people start organizing, you know, if you're protesting outside one factory, you know, that's no big deal. But if you organize between factories, in other words, start to organize, you know, present some sort of political organization, then I think the authorities would have absolutely no compunction about locking you up, uh, treating you harshly. But the system, I don't think, you know, violence is an afterthought, I think, or it's, you know, it's, it's, not, the, it's not what the, the party doesn't want to control people, uh, you know, wants to co-opt them, not coerce them. Uh, and that's how most of these episodes are handled. Now, you can point to any number of horrible things happening every day, and I think they're probably all true. Uh, I lived through Shanghai when all sorts of people were getting thrown out, out, of, out of their homes, but in the process, the, the system, you know, uh, uh, improved. You know, people got more money and the like. You know, it wasn't perfect. There was still loads of corruption. So in that respect, I think they're responsive to problems and nip them in the bud before you get any organisation, any national sort of uprising, uh, as you had in 1989. Uh, that, I mean, there's certainly a tension there, but that's what I mean by that. I mean, also the... The milk powder scandal is very much like scandals you had in the 1890s in the States when you had exponential growth and weak regulation, you know, food scandals, the, the jungle, the book about the Chicago meatworks. I mean, it's not like this didn't happen in other countries. The point of my example is there is how the, it was manipulated by shadowy party bodies, not that the fact that it happened. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, right at the back with the glasses. Uh, James Woodhouse, and I write for Spiked. Uh, congratulations on your talk. I had to laugh la last year when I was in China, in just the weeks when I think David Cameron, taking a leaf from Obama's book, asked non-conservative party people to help select conservative party candidates. And also there was the big MPs' expenses scandal. And in China at the same week, pretty much, the party opened up discussion on inner party democracy to non-party members, uh, which was a bit like Cameron. And then they announced yet another uh, inquiry into corruption and kind of MPs' expenses and so on. Uh, it seems to me that they're a bit more influenced by the West, whatever their paranoia, than you suggested. Would you care to comment on those two rather amusing developments? Um. I'm not quite sure I understand the parallel, to be honest. Um, the, I mean, inner party democracy is <clears throat> as contradictory as it sounds. I mean, democracy in China takes place within the party, not within the broader polis. Um, um, what's, I don't understand, have I missed something? What's the connection between the expenses scandal and the uh, inner party democracy? What, what I'm saying, Or was there something more to them? My impression was it was a little bit more than cosmetic. 
Uh, well, there's all sorts of you know so-called consultative democracy uh, experiments going on all over China with various <coughs> at a local level with various um, uh, you know uh, uh, representative bodies and the like. Um, I, I think they're both experiments and also just letting a bit of air out at the same time, mainly the latter. Um, but certainly, you know, China likes to co-opt everything, um, and they also want to want the word democracy, democracy to be theirs as well. I think at a press conference in about 2006, Wen Jiabao uh, made a lengthy exposition about democracy and how it wasn't simply the preserve of the West. You know, China. You know, if you go to China, you want democracy. You've got to find a new dictionary, right? Because that has a different meaning um, if you want to look it up. But I think they, the party, wants to redefine the word democracy on their own terms. Ten years ago, or um, uh, uh, the word democracy, when the, you know, as I went back to China in 2000, you used to look up the word democracy on um, on uh, Google and the like. It was a banned word. Now. I think the you know the party is is very clever. It moves into the space that it thinks it needs to occupy, um, and there's no reason I think in their view that they, the West should occupy the high ground. Why can't they? Uh, the gentleman uh, at the back, on the on the on the yeah, by the aisle. Uh, thanks. Um, you mentioned the Beijing Consensus right near the end of your talk, which also happens to be the title of a new book by Stefan Halper. And I, mean, I, I slightly disagree with your point that it's not replicable in the non-Western parts of this world. Um, and I just, I mean, to, it, it's certainly a system that I find uh, very attractive. I mean, I'm not speaking for the, I'm from India, I'm not speaking for the rest of my countrymen, but I just want to know why is it that you think that this system is not replicable? <coughs> well, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, uh, you know, the Beijing consensus, I think, is often applied to African countries. <clears throat> uh, if African countries were governed like China, then China would not be allowed to go in there and buy, literally, you know, buy the freehold, if you like, to their resources, their copper, their oil. I'm not criticizing Chinese investment in Africa. I think that's a good thing. But you can't go into China and uh, invest your money and buy up PetroChina or Sinopec or something like that. That's not possible. African countries, um, are, uh, you know, have opened their, you know, they need the investment. It's probably going to benefit them, but certainly China can in invest in Africa in ways that other countries cannot invest in China. Um, <clears throat> that's one obvious example. I mean, the Beijing consensus just seems to me a rather sort of woolly. Um, it's a great-sounding phrase. I think it has a big, there's a, you know, a big picture view in, in that China is a powerful alternative to the West. But as to replicating the system in China, when, in which you have you know a, a lengthy period, you know centuries of bureaucracy, plus a you know a, a highly organised Leninist state, can you replicate that? I don't think so. Right. Uh, yeah, the gentleman with the beard with the light blue shirt. Um, a victory for patience. first question was with regards to water scarcity um, and, its, and China's relationship with India. I know this is a talk about China, but I just wanted to talk to her. For you to talk to us about the relationship between China and India and how they're going to solve the water scarcity problem. 
And the second question, which is quite key to me that we haven't really covered, is how China is going to manage the internet. If you want to talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, the first question really is, um, I mean, you get into global warming and the, uh, you know, the melting of the Himalayan glaciers. Um, I, I have no idea how that's going to work out. Um, uh, India and China are an interesting, fractious pair of nations. The Indians, if you think you read a lot of criticism in Western papers of uh, China, I think if you read Indian papers, they're even um, more sort of antagonistic, uh, deeply so, uh, or sections of India, and uh, nationalistic. Uh, if I'm right, the area that Ch India and China dispute is probably larger than France or something like that. And I think they're having talks so they can keep talking. I don't know how they would ever solve that. Um, but as to how they solve the water problem, I, I can't say anything sensible, to be odd, uh, honest. The internet is, uh, is kind of interesting, obviously. Um, you know, every uh, that was another thing that was going to bring the Communist Party undone. Of course, it hasn't at all. So when I say the internet, I mean oh. data management. What kind of data? <laughs> oh, like in, in ID cards or something, or what? I don't know, actually. I mean, I should get somebody in from IBM <laughs> to answer that. Uh, I mean, I can talk about the internet, how they manage the internet, but actually, yeah, I, I don't know about the, uh, there's, yeah, I don't know about that. Sorry. Okay, gentlemen at the back there on the grey. Is it grey? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Can I ask you a question about how you become a member of the Communist Party? Uh, are people selected in? And if they are, are they interrogated for pure ideological purity? What is the actual process, please? Um, I don't know. Are there any members of the party in the room tonight? Maybe they can tell us. Uh, but the, in, in short, you have to be uh, invited to join the party. You, you know, you're selected. <clears throat> Uh, some of the students I spoke to at uh, Tsinghua, Tsinghua University and Peking University last year, for example, um, the, uh, this, the, you know, the best Chinese unis, uh, two people out of each class, the top people, nominated, um, were uh, offered uh, to join the party. You have to fill in a form. I think you've got to write a statement about why you want to join the party. Um, you know, this is quite funny. I think uh, you can go on the internet and, and take down a statement that's there for anybody who wants to use and just bang it in. It's kind of like cheating in your exams. Uh, but, you know, the important point is that you're part of an elite, and a large elite, no doubt, but an elite. You're selected. You don't just join of your own free will. Um, otherwise, being recruited, it might be like, you know, Cambridge spies or something. There's a don who spots you and uh, pulls you aside. Yeah, gentlemen at the front here in the back. Yeah, right at the front. Um, hi, Koku from China.org. Um, I was interested in this question again about the exportability. Um, I think that's relevant in two other areas. One is the question about commanding heights economy, an economy dominated by public ownership, Yashan Huan touched on that, but also 
the socialistic concept of that. Um, and then the other question is, going backwards in time, um, Khrushchev's changes in the economy in the 1960s, had he carried those out, would they have been able to uh, develop their economy in a way similar to China? And one final point is um, the question about the socialistic or Marxist terminology within which the whole of the state in China operates. Do you not feel that that's because of the increasing power of the Chinese proletariat, as they say? I can't speak about Khrushchev. I'm not an expert on that. <clears throat> um, as to the increasing power of the proletariat, um, um, you know, the you know, I think Marx, when he once was, uh, you know, told that the, a particular party in France was calling itself Marxist, and he looked at them and he said, "Well, then I'm not a Marxist," you know. And I think he'd have the same feeling if he went to China today. Um, the I think the the proletariat, if you want to call it that, I mean, let's just say the ordinary workers uh, are getting more power uh, for obvious reasons, there's demographic reasons. Uh, there's uh, less of them, particularly in southern China. I mean, the the great uh, the most prized workers in southern China have been young women with dexterous fingers who can work in, uh, you know, put the iPads together and like. There's less and less of them. Uh, they're more demanding. Uh, and if you talk to uh, the, the book you mentioned about uh, uh, Mr. Huang Huang Ashan, uh, I mean, his great point, quite apart from separating the 80s and the 90s, the two different eras of Chinese economic reform, his point, and I think the reform, the point of many economists make about China these days, is that China's big problem is low incomes. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about global imbalances, the US consumes, China saves. That's true, but not in the way that people think. Uh, Chinese savings rates in recent years have, be, have gone up, but it's not because everybody is putting away money for their... Well, not just because people are putting, putting away funds for health and schooling and the like. Uh, the big rise in Chinese savings rates are basically corporate savings, in other words, company profits uh, and state company profits. And so that means the wage share in China, I think, went from you know 55% to 42% over a period of 10 years. So China's consumption problem, if they've got a consumption problem, is because people don't have enough money. Uh, so in many respects, you know, the point of development is for people's lives to improve, you know, to for people to their living standards to rise. Uh, now, if China has got a problem with consumption, the government acknowledges that they have for years and years and years, and the obvious answer is that uh, income should rise. Uh, so, in fact, the, 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 the two sets of strikes we've seen in China in the last month, one at Honda, one at Foxconn, uh, the Taiwanese company that makes the iPad and the like, or puts together the iPad, uh, obviously there's a bit of going on in each case. I mean, Honda is a Japanese company, therefore you can beat up on them a bit. It's a bit easier. Uh, and Foxconn has, Foxconn has had this particular problem of uh, suicides, the horrific suicides of at least 10 workers. But leaving that aside and the concern both the central and local governments would have about strikes, because they don't want strikes, I think they've been very uh, supportive of wage increases. Uh, now, I don't know whether that's across the board, but the central government's very supportive of wage increases because they realise that's exactly what they want. So in that respect, if the, if the proletariat or workers are getting more power, that's a good thing. And in theory, that is the whole credo of this government, which I started in uh, 2002, 
you know, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao want the harmonious society, which basically means a better life for people. Uh, what's happened is it has been the opposite. Greedy state companies have sucked up most of the income, but right now, finally, that tide seems to be turning. If that answers your question. Yep. To what extent is the party factional? I mean, you, you, you hear about the Shanghai clique and, and Hu Jintao wasn't immediately put in, in charge of the military. At what extent is it factional and to what extent is that ideological? Um, it's a hard question to answer, you know. I mean, I kind of haven't really gone into that much. I mean, there's obviously a Shanghai gang which used to be ascendant. <clears throat> I do have a chapter on that, but one of the problems, I mean, I also have not written in my book about fighting at the top between so Jiang Zemin and this, that and the other. I haven't written much about that because mostly it's very opaque. And so if you read these columns in Hong Kong papers about what's happening at the top of the Communist Party and, you know, somebody's up, they're down, they're up, they're down, and by the end of the column your head's spinning because it's not clear. And I think anybody who tells you they know what's happening at the top is usually lying. Um, um, uh, there's clearly factions, uh, uh, <clears throat> but I also think it's a mistake to reduce Chinese politics to a sort of binary division um, between sort of Shanghai and the sort of youth league faction under Hu Jintao. Having said that, if you wanted to find them broadly, then you know the Shanghai faction in theory represent um, uh, coastal development max at full speed ahead. Uh, whereas the alternative faction are much more interested in rural reform and uh, lifting the incomes of workers. But that's a very crude differentiation. Yeah, uh, the gentleman on the inside there. In the black. You just throw the microphone at you. Hello. Um, it's got a quick question on... Uh, from your view, what is the role of the minor parties in China, their relationship with the Communist Party and their influence on government? And do you see this growing or declining in, in, in the near future? Uh, well, I mean, the minor parties, the so-called eight democratic parties, are basically there to give assent to the Communist Party. They're funded by the Communist Party. Their leaders are appointed by the Communist Party. <coughs> so, you know, the answer is basically not much. Having said that, I did meet a few of the leaders of these parties who sort of in their heart of hearts, they said they saw this as a sort of, you know, a little uh, area from which they could gradually sort of come out of the foxhole and advance a little bit and, you know, perhaps one day build themselves into a sort of freestanding democratic party. But by and large, they're there for, it's, I, I think, window decoration. Right. Uh, the gentleman in the blue here. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you know about Xi Jinping, who's going to be the, uh, the next person in China to look at? Thanks. Just about nothing sensible, to be honest. Um, the, this is the amazing thing, you know. He's uh, been preordained for four or five years <coughs> to take over in 2012. In theory, that's the Chinese leadership until 2022, uh, if the present sort of system lasts. In other words, he gets two, two five-year terms. Um, you know, we know he's a so-called princeling. Um, you know, he's had experience in coastal provinces, uh, inland as well. But frankly, as to what his, his views are and his public profile, uh, you know, 
I kind of follow this closely, but you know, I'm in the dark. In fact, his wife, who's a, a singer with the uh, People's Liberation Army, is more famous than him um, in China, or was until recently. Um, so I think it's very, you know, I, I think by the time they get to that position, this is the funny thing about it. I mean, he has to erase, I think, largely erase. Uh, um, he cannot, while he's waiting for the job, go out and campaign for it and distinguish distinguish himself with a whole bunch of policies, which he can then pre-position the bureaucracy to to start as soon as he gets into office. In fact, he has to do the opposite, much like Hu Jintao did, uh, and say virtually nothing. Um, in fact, the one outburst he did make, I think, at some diplomatic reception in Mexico where he complained about the West was widely considered to be a big mistake. Um, so I think that's the, uh, you know, by the time you get to the top, the, the standing committee, uh, your any public utterances which uh, are a mark of a division at the top are absolutely taboo because that's what happened in 1989 and it almost brought the party down. So. I don't have much to tell you. Right. I can speculate, but it's speculation. Let's move into the centre row. The gentleman here in the blue. Well, there's two. Two. We'll have blue followed by blue then. Emmanuel Uico, LSE Ideas. I have a question about tensions between the central government and the local governments because the way it's being portrayed is that the central government is well intentioned, but local governments tend to be independent-minded. So you have these issues that they don't give fair compensation to those evicted for developing commercial land, environmental standards, minimum wages, and the case of officials gambling in Macau with government money. Could you speak to those a bit? Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's this differentiation which is quite crude that you know, central good, local bad, I think that's I think that's a vast oversimplification. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of sort of bad boys at the local level who do all sorts of terrible things. That's true, uh, and the uh, officials at, at at the centre, at the top, are obviously uh, of a lot higher calibre. But it doesn't do us any good to just have a simple local centre divide. Um, and in fact, I think local governments, in fact, are one of China's in some ways great strengths because. Uh, you know, everybody thinks China is competing against, um, you know, Malaysia, Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, and the like. But in fact, every locality in China is competing against each other uh, for business and growth. Um, I can remember when I went to Dandong, in, uh, which looks over North Korea, a few years ago, and you know, you could look over to North Korea, and there's a few sort of buffaloes and wisping smoke coming out. It's you know, like a sort of scene of 19th century rural poverty, whereas on the Chinese side it was an absolute party, you know, big buildings, lots of cars, nightclubs and everything. <clears throat> and I said to the people in this area, Dandong, that, uh, uh, you know, how fantastically they were doing. And I looked up later, they were growing at about 15% a year. And they said to me, they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going far too slow. Far too slow. And, and the reason was because the town down the road was growing at about 17%. And so they benchmarked themselves, not against Vietnam or Bangladesh, but the town down the road. Um, so I think that internal competition, which is driven by local governments, is basically a great strength. Uh, obviously, the corruption at the local level, which is blatant, uh, is a great weakness. 
but you know that's the system's fault. It's not simply because they're bad and the centre is good. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, uh, sorry, I've just got two quick things. Uh, first of all, you said about how um, about how. Uh, Sorry, I said quick. Um, about how it's really elitist and difficult to get into the party from what you've heard from uh, Tsinghua University. But that kind of conflicts with what you said about one in 12 people being in the party. And also what I've heard from someone at Shizu, uh, Xi'an International Studies University, where uh, she told me that everyone applies and they have to do this application form and it's like a farce and they have training and stuff, but everyone gets in. And that's my first point, if you could clarify that sort of um, contradiction. Um, my other one was um, you said about how the top leadership are quite anti-American and anti-Western but um, the normal Chinese people that I've met, um, not the sort of haves at LSE but you're the sort of middle classes uh, really love America, you're sort of average Joe, they, they love America. Um, is that a sort of uh, indictment on the success of the propaganda department? Uh, probably yes, the latter. But anyway, the come back to your first point. <clears throat> I said it was an elite. I didn't say it was elitist. Now they're considered to themselves to be an elite, or they make it like an elite. Certainly, you know. But you're right. It's not like an ordinary elite. One in twelve. It's big. But uh, m my understanding is that anybody can't join the party. You have to be invited. Um, uh, a lot of people do get in, but you know it's not. You know you have to be accepted. You don't just sort of. You know, it's like turning up at a Labour Party meeting and write the, you know, play your dues and write the ticket. It's not like that. Uh, <clears throat> the second question, yes, I think there's probably, a, you know, this, it's, this is the case with America all around the world, isn't it? People on one side of the American embassy are throwing bombs at it, and the other side they're lining up for visas. And uh, China has the same schizoid uh, attitude to uh, the US. But if you look at there's a very good book published on the propaganda department, and if you look at the ten tenets of the propaganda department, uh, one of them is to you know, constantly criticise the US. And that's one way the system attempts to strengthen uh, you know, people's belief in the system, is by constantly denigrating rival systems. And obviously the most attractive rival is the US. Um, but you know, I think people in the UK are probably conflicted about the US as well, aren't we all? What, what about the exchange rate policy? If the MIMBY is not convertible, and the rest claims it's overvalued, it's undervalued, so is there a revaluation and uh, what the process to um, change the currency? <coughs> well, if I knew that, I probably wouldn't be a working journalist. I'd be, you know, rich. I don't know when there's going to be a revaluation. I mean, there, there was. I think we did really expect one <coughs> um, uh, by now. Uh, 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 but because of the crisis in the eurozone, it's been put off. Um, if there were to be any revaluation, it would be tiny. There's, I don't think they would move quickly. Uh, I think the renminbi is important, but it's become a little bit inflated uh, as an issue, as like a sort of smelly little litmus test that that if you know if only the the currency uh, was revalued, everything would be okay. That's obviously not the case. Um, you know, if you look at Asia's, tr you know, China's trade surplus as part of the Asian trade surplus hasn't changed that much. Um, 
I mean, I think you know they've they've you know China has stuffed up its currency policy. You can see that by the amount of foreign exchange reserves they've got, because that's a tremendous amount of wasted money. Uh, but having said that, um, I can understand why they keep capital controls because if money could come and go from China freely, you know, I think the banking system would probably collapse. You know, Chinese people would like to take a lot of money out of the country. Um, uh, but having said that, they have obviously moved too slowly on their RMB and they're kind of trapped now. Yep. Uh, you've mentioned the party, the elite. Um, you've mentioned the workers in uh, urban areas. Um, one section of the population that you haven't uh, mentioned at all is uh, or are the, the farmers or peasants uh, that represent two-thirds of the population approximately. Um, how great uh, a threat um, are farmers slash peasants to, uh, to the party's position um, at the moment and potentially in the future because I guess the, the middle class are benefiting from the reforms and therefore they're uh, tacit supporters um, of the party um, at the moment um, as long as uh, development continues. Um, but yeah, what are the concerns as far as the peasants are concerned? Um, <coughs> yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. I was, you know, my describing a political organisation, I didn't really go into the rural issue, which is obviously enormous and highly complex. But you're right, the middle class in, in cities are the win are big winners uh, out of uh, reform. Um, uh, the golden period of reform for rural China was the 80s when incomes uh, uh, in the countryside, when people were given great freedom, uh, went up rapidly. Uh, since then, as a uh, uh, colleague over here noted, um, <coughs> you know, cities have become much more favoured, the rural areas uh, by comparison discriminated against, but as to being a sort of uh, a revolutionary force, they're far too dispersed. Um, most, many of the men are in the cities, uh, working, sending money back. That's a great self safety valve. Um, you know, the China is like, you know, the Philippines, for example. The Philippines' biggest export is uh, uh, is its people who then send money back in the form of remittances. China has that all in one country. You know, you basically, it's the remittances from the cities have supported the countryside. Um, uh, so that that that's one thing. And I think you know, there's in the last five, ten years, there's been enormous amount attempts to improve rural uh, schooling which collapsed in the 90s, rural health, which also collapsed in the 90s. Uh, uh, the numbers of the rural population is now down under two-thirds, maybe 60%. Um, but you're right, it's kind of, you know, and, and, you know, and also, of course, they've, they've got, uh, there's a total free market in rural produce, prices have fallen, they earn less money. Um, it's kind of a little bit out of sight, out of mind, really. Uh, uh, and I think you'll have rural poverty in China for as long as we live. I don't know whether I can you know, be more sensible than that. Right, I'm going to take three, three final questions. Gentleman here. Thank 
Thank you very much, Chairman. Uh, question about public health. There seem to be huge problem, in, like in India. Combination of poverty alongside heavy drinking, heavy smoking. And that seems to be a growing market as well. Uh, the, the milk, uh, plastic milk that you mentioned, I would have expected somebody from health department to give a speech or public statement about it. And it came from the Central Politics and the Law Committee. Uh, in the whole slide, I couldn't see any of the public health department or health department in that. Will you enlighten us on something of that? They don't consider it important because hospitals have kept a total secrecy, so it couldn't have gone into the village and township committees. It must it, be very centrally controlled. So you, population. You're talking about the population agency? Public, Pub, public health. Well, <clears throat> yeah, okay, but I'm not trying to talk about that's really a, a government function. I mean, in, in theory, there's a guy in the Politburo uh, who is in charge of health reform. Um, I mean, when I'm question, asked a question about public health in China, I mean, I could talk for uh, three days or, you know, a few seconds. It's, it's hard to know where to start or end. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, uh, the, the short answer is that public health, I think, collapsed in the 90s when the state economy was reformed and the old work units were wound down. You know, you, you didn't have the cradle-to-grave help anymore and they're just in the process of rebuilding it now. But, you know, how do you get a public health system out? And uh, it's, it's hard enough where I come from to get doctors to go to rural Australia. How do you get good, well-trained doctors, and I guess India is the same, to go into the Chinese countryside? It's very difficult, and they've spent a ton of money, uh, um, but I've no idea how well spent it is. I mean, life expectancy in China has increased, but I kind of feel out of my depth if I start talking about public health in too much detail. Sorry. Right. Uh, yeah, the gentleman here and then gentleman there. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us whether there have been any significant effects or whether there are expected to be any significant effects from the one child per family period. Well, I mean, I think there's an overhang of 20 million. Um, I think there's 20 million, aren't there, less young women in China these days than young men? Uh, as, as far as I can tell, um, there is no great, uh, for all the um, um, you know, propaganda campaigns uh, <coughs> waged to persuade families not to abort uh, young women, it continues. Um, you know, you're basically going to have a lot of men looking for wives and struggling to find them. Uh, the, you know, the population issue is once again a massively complicated issue, um, but um, you know, it's been reformed in many areas. You know, if in Shanghai these days, if you're if two kids who are both single children marry, they can have two children. Certainly, people in the countryside would like permission that some in the cities would like the kind of permission you get in rural areas to. To um, you know, to have more children and the like, and I think that will gradually be relaxed. But in the meantime, you've got a terrible sort of demographic uh, deficit, um, both in terms of a, a, you'll have a rapidly aging population and a great imbalance between men and women. Yep. 
Thank you. You spoke about the growth of the Chinese economy, and you spoke about uh, growth of uh, localized capitalism. On the other hand, you spoke about the resilience of the party. Do you think in the foreseeable future uh, there will be a need for the party to defend itself like it did uh, in the 80s uh, by using extraordinary means? Um, no, the uh, you know because basically the big trend in China you know in the last ten years is to be <clears throat> get entrepreneurs inside the party. Um, so you know it's the big tent as the Americans like to call it. You know if you're rich you're welcome inside the party. Uh, plus you know the wealthier you get in China the more uh, at risk you are vulnerable to the power of officials. I mean it's basically an administrative system. Uh, individual officials have great power, so there's a terrific incentive for rich entrepreneurs and powerful officials to get together and work together for mutual benefit, and I think that's basically uh, what's happened. Okay. Right, well, I think we'll bring proceedings to a close with that. There have been a whole galaxy of questions, and I'd like to thank you all very much for coming along and of course I want to say thank you to Richard as you can see he's very knowledgeable he's been uh, in China for about 10 years uh, first in Shanghai and then as bureau chief for the Financial Times for the last uh, four years of that period and before that from the 90s you were also working in in Northeast Asia yeah so um, and I, I, I always think it's um, a terrific aid actually when someone with your kind of knowledge uh, working for a, a paper like the Financial Times reflects on your experiences uh, which are very different from the way an academic would accumulate uh, experience and, uh, and contain different kinds uh, of insights and observations and knowledge. So I think this is, is very rich and I think I'd like to thank you very much and uh, uh, as I said earlier, Richard's book will be on sale afterwards outside, and if uh, he twists his arm, I'm sure he'll be prepared to sign it for you. So please join me in thanking him very much.